ready to get into the Word of God tonight? You ready to finish First Peter? Amen. How many of you read ahead into First Peter 5? Well, the rest of you really do trust me to teach you. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we just thank you tonight for the Word of God. We thank you for being with us. We thank you that we approach the sacred Word, the, the living Word, that is quick and powerful. And it cuts to divide between our souls and our spirits and our joints and marrow. And it reveals and exposes and discerns the thoughts and motivations of our heart. And Lord, you change us and rearrange us and renew us by your word. Send your word and heal us, Lord. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Breathe a prayer, church, as always, to say, Lord, I receive your word. Engrafted into my soul. In Jesus' name, let's say it together, this is the Word of God. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good. Okay, a quick story to humble myself in front of you. Uh, I know I'm healthy. Now, let me tell you how I know. I had an alarm system put into my house, a new alarm system a while back. <laughs> and um, this alarm system was... Pretty, pretty nice. I mean, it's going to tell me if somebody's trying to get in. And I don't know if you've ever been totally asleep and that alarm go off. <laughs> Nothing wakes you up like this. So, so I'm, I'm asleep. The alarm's been in there a number of months. And I'm, I'm fast asleep. My little Yorkie dog is right next to me, snoring. Okay? And all of a sudden, the alarm goes off. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. And I know this thing is sophisticated, so it's not going to go off if something is not trying to get in. I bolted up, right? You know, your heart starts going, and, and you're not thinking straight because you were completely asleep. So I get up, and I go, what do I do? What do I do? And I, and I looked, and I'm thinking, well, I'm going to face the devil. And I just went out there. Now, I just went out into my house. Mr. Courageous Brave. <laughs> Mr. Man of God, full of faith and power for the hour. So I go out there. Now I have this hallway, and I'm, I'm looking around. I'm trying to see in the dark, trying to get my eyes to adjust. And, and I'm walking down this hall, and what I had totally forgotten was that part of my alarm system is they can talk to you. No, there's a speaker on the main alarm thing where somebody somewhere in the world is monitoring all these alarms and they know that your alarm went off and they can talk to you. I forgot all about that. I'm going down the hallway. And all of a sudden, I just happen to be feet from this speaker. And this voice goes, Mr. Wickwire? Now... If I weren't healthy, I would not be here tonight. I would have died of a heart attack on the spot. Are you okay? I think I said, hi, Mom, just fine. I'm glad to be with you tonight. It was the woman going, are you okay? 
Oh, no, no, what was it? It, it, One of the windows had not been locked. And so something, wind or anything, doesn't take much because it's very sensitive. But it was a real experience, let me tell you, to have a voice in the dark. (laughs) When you live alone, suddenly talk to you. Wow. So I know I'm healthy. Amen. Now for the Word of God. Now, we finished last time looking at the call to humility. Now, one definition of humility, not the only one, but I think this is a good one, is to simply be God-reliant rather than self-reliant. Now, you're probably thinking, well, Jeff, I was raised my whole life to be self-reliant. There's nothing wrong with having confidence in what God has given you to do. But it's another thing when you're so self-reliant that you never turn to God for help because you believe you can do it better. So one definition of humility is to be God-reliant rather than self-reliant. There's many things in life that we can't do. And if God doesn't do it, it's never going to be done. Amen? Amen? It is, I believe, humility is when you assess yourself honestly in light of the greatness of God from whom we have received everything we have. And so Paul argues in Romans, he says, if everything you've got you've received, then how can you be proud? Because everything you have, every gift you have, every ability you you have, you received it. You didn't come up with it, you received it. So if you're just honest about yourself, it'll make you humble. Now Peter finishes his word on humility, talking about humility's rewards. He says in verse 6 of chapter 5, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Now this verse tells us that the way up in God's kingdom is down. The world says promote yourself, scratch and claw your way to the top. But the way of God's kingdom says humble yourself low and God will promote you up high. Because doesn't he say, humble yourself under God's hand and he's the one who will exalt you in due time. Real promotion comes from not the east, the psalmist said, nor from the west, but it comes from above. If you get yourself up there, you've got to keep yourself up there. But if God puts you up there, God's got to keep you up there. Amen? Amen. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. The world would say that humility is a position of weakness. If you're humble, you're weak. They equate humility with weakness, but it's not weakness at all. God says that you're in a position of strength when you're humble. The humble Christian is the strong, victorious Christian. No doubt about it. James wrote, and I'm going to read this verse twice tonight. James wrote, so humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So notice that humbling yourself before God literally positions you to resist the devil and win spiritual battles. Spiritual victory begins with humility before God. That doesn't occur to us naturally, does it? But spiritual victory begins with, Lord, I humble myself before you. I can't win this battle. It's bigger than me. The devil's bigger than me. This this enemy is bigger than me. This, This addiction is bigger than me. This challenge is bigger than me. Lord, so I'm humbling myself before you, God. If you don't do it, it's not going to get done. And then God says, boy, I I home in on you when I see humility. 
But when I see pride, I literally resist you, push you away, put you at arm's length. Amen? Amen. Then finally, from our position of humility, Peter says, casting, one of my favorite verses, this verse has saved my life many times, figuratively speaking. Casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. Now, the word for care here is anxiety. All your worries are to be cast upon him. Peter promises because he cares for you. Now, folks, let me ask you, do we live in an anxious culture? Oh, yeah. We live in a worried culture, a a culture filled with anxiety. You better believe it. The air is electric with anxiety. Uh, In many places where you go, you feel people's anxiety. We're anxious about the nation. We're anxious about the world. We're anxious about diseases and all the financial troubles that we experience and all of that. These anxieties can literally be job thieves or joy thieves. They steal your joy. Joy thieves. We are always worried, always filled with anxiety. Now, notice that in this one short verse, he uses the care, word care twice. Casting all your care on him, for he cares for you. The first time, it's plural in the Greek, meaning we are to cast our many and varied anxieties onto the Lord. So when he says casting all your care upon him in the Greek, that's plural. Casting all your cares, all the worries, all of them. And then he says, for he cares for you. Now in the Greek, that word is singular. So he cares for you. This kind of care refers to somebody who has an interest in you. Bottom line is, we have many cares, but God has one, you. You know, I have two dogs, and I talk about them a lot. I know, I love them. I love dogs. I love my pets. But I've noticed about me, I'm always noticing what they need. And I'm imperfect. I'm flawed. I'm distracted all the time. It's easy for me to get preoccupied with things. But I will notice if their water is gone. I'll notice if they're looking at me like they're a little bit hungry. And they don't look at me and say, Jeff, I, I, I pray, bring me my food. <laughs> no, but I, as a being higher, more intelligent than them, more aware than them, I notice their need, and I make sure they have water. I make sure they have food. I take care of them. And, and again, I'm full of imperfections, uh, but I see their need. Now, God is perfect. God is flawless. And so if I can see my dog's needs, and they're always well-fed and well-watered and taken care of, then where does that put God in us? He sees what you need. He sees when the water is low. He sees when the food is low. He sees when you need money. He sees it. We have many cares, but God has one, and that's us. Now, Peter now turns to a closing word about our enemy, the devil. Um, Somebody was telling me about a well-known pastor this week who was preaching about uh, demons, talking about demons. And he said, if you don't believe there's demons, you need to wake up and realize there are demons. Uh, It's not figurative language. It's not metaphorical. It's not the Bible using some kind of a simile or or metaphor to make a point. It's not just an idea or a notion. There's a real devil And there are real demons. And Peter is about to tell us a lot about the devil. He says, be sober, verse 8. Be vigilant, 
Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Now, let's do a little word study here. Notice, he's not just an adversary. He's your adversary. Isn't that what he says? Because your adversary, the devil. We all have an adversary. And the adversary is the devil. And he's not somebody else's adversary. He's your adversary. So that means he's out to deceive you, trick you, lie to you, make you stumble, rob from you, steal from you, plunder what God is doing in your life. Now, because we're engaged in a spiritual conflict until the day that we go home to heaven, Peter says we're to be sober-minded. That's the first thing, be sober. In light of the fact there's a devil, be sober. And that means... Not intoxicated, and I really do believe that's talking about alcohol or drugs. I don't want anything that will in any way intoxicate me. I'm just telling you. I'm not trying to cast a net of condemnation on you at all. You can work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but i got to tell you, I don't like my mind being clouded by anything. Amen? Now, but it's also to have presence of mind, to have your wits about you. To be spiritually alert. If you were to ask me tonight, Jeff, what do you think the greatest deficit in the current church is? I would tell you it would have to be lack of discernment. We're, We're not discerning. And the reason we're not as discerning as we should be is we don't know the word of God like we ought to. So there's a lot of things floating around out there that claim to be of God and from God. But, but they're not because the Bible would tell me they're not. But, but we're not discerning it. And, and see, I think part of being sober and being vigilant is to be discerning. To be aware that the, the devil, he doesn't come to us in, in the form of some ugly, revolting creature. He doesn't come to us in the form of a comical, cartoonish character in a red suit and a tail and a pitchfork and horns. He comes to us in the form of what is beautiful, attractive, appealing to your senses, convincing to your ears. He's not going to raise up somebody who can't talk good. He's going to raise up somebody who is eloquent, smooth. What's that song? Smooth operator. I'm not going to sing it. I, I would drive you out. But here's, the, but, but he, but that's the devil. The devil is smooth, folks. He's convincing. He, he knows how to appeal to the sight and the taste and the touch and the smell and the hearing. He appeals to our five senses. He knows how to get into our brain and try to convince us of something that's false. So Peter says, "You better be sober." You better be vigilant. Vigilant means stay awake, be spiritually alert, be aware of what's around you, watching for the devil's strategies against you. Why? He says, let me tell you why you need to be sober and vigilant, because the devil's on the prowl. Now, I appreciate that Peter sort of caricatures him now as an animal. He wants us to understand the nature of Satan. So he compares him to a lion. He says, the word that Peter used for adversary literally means accuser. He's he's an accuser. 
like a prosecuting attorney accuses you in court. That's exactly what it means. Satan acts like an adversary in a lawsuit against you. He condemns you, accuses you, slanders you, undermines you. And you know where it all happens? In between your two ears. And you don't even know it's the devil working on you sometimes. You're driving down the highway and you're thinking how terrible you are. What a failure you are. What a wretch you are. What a no count you are. How there's no future for you. How everything looks bleak to you. and, And you're just sitting there mulling over what a bad person you are. And how many times you have failed. And you're thinking of all the times you have messed up. And you don't even stop to think it could be the accuser working in your head. Be sober, be vigilant, be alert, be aware. He wants to steal your joy. See, your face is God's greatest billboard. Now, in light of that, what are people reading on your billboard? He calls Satan a roaring lion, which means literally to howl. Peter wants us to see the predatory nature of the devil. He howls like a lion on the hunt. Now, I live where I live. There's some woods behind me, and and there are coyotes out there. I've run into them on walks. I've walked right up on one. I looked at him. He looked at me. It was sort of like, who's going to get out of the way? I said, I'm happy to get out of the way, but he got out of the way first. But anyway, there's coyotes out there. And sometimes at night, if the windows are open, you can hear a pack of them all howling at once, and it sounds like something from hell. It does. It's horrible sounding. It's ghoulish sounding. Peter wants us to see the the devil that way. He howls. He's a roaring lion, and he walks about. Notice how he describes him. Not just how he sounds, howls like a lion, but he walks about, which paints a graphic picture of Satan's restless energy. He's not passively sitting in the shadows, watching the world pass by. He's pacing back and forth, always searching for a hapless victim. He's always on the hunt, always on the prowl. Now, who is he concerned about? Is he concerned about that drug addict out there on the street? Not really. Who is he concerned about? The blood-bought, spirit-filled, Jesus-exalting child of God. You're the one. He's pacing back and forth, trying to figure out, how can I get into that mind, into that life? How can I pull the trigger on past habits? How can I get to them where I take them out? I'm not going to get them out of his hands, but I can get them out of the race. I'm not going to get them out of the hands of the one who said, no man will pluck them from my hands, but, but I can knock them off the saddle. I can ruin their testimony. I can hurt them. So he's always on the prowl. Now, I'm not lifting up the devil tonight, but I want to tell the truth about him. We have have an adversary. He's your adversary. He's my adversary. Peter goes on to say his goal is to devour. Satan isn't playing games, folks. Spiritual warfare is for keeps. The devil's desire is to swallow alive his victims. That's what that word means. Seeking whom he may swallow alive. The very same Greek word is used to describe the Egyptian soldiers who followed Moses and the children of Israel into the Red Sea. It says they were drowned, they were swallowed alive by the sea. Same word, if you translate that Hebrew word into Greek. Same word. Same word. 
devour, swallow alive. In other words, it's not a pretty picture. The devil is not out to give you a flat tire, as I often say, or to make something go bump in the night. Or to scare you from somebody talking out of a speaker. No, he'll work 20 years to bring down a man of God. 20 years to bring down a woman of God. He's strategic, the Bible says. He strategizes. He's a thinker. He talks about the wiles of the devil, the stratagems of the devil. He plays chess, not checkers. And and so we are to be aware of this lion. We're to be aware of him. Now, he's going to tell us how to win over him, but he first wants us to be aware of him. He tells us how to deal with Satan's attacks in verse 9. Resist him. Everybody say resist him. Well, that's a powerful word. Resist him. Let's say it again. Resist him. So you've been alert enough to spot that it's the devil attacking your home. It's the devil attacking your marriage, your finances, your children, you, your mind. That's why you're so tempted. That's why you're in such a battle. You have discerned that you're dealing with the roaring lion. So he says, so what do you do about it? Once you discern it, you say, number one, I'm going to resist him. Steadfast in my faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. No temptation has taken man or no uh, temptation has overtaken you, but what is common to man. If you're experiencing a temptation, no matter what it is, many other people who love Jesus in the world are experiencing the same thing. The devil loves telling you, there isn't anybody like you. You're weird. You're unique. You're fighting this all alone. But it's not true. The same sufferings are experienced by your brothers in the world. They're, They're fighting for their marriages. They're fighting to keep their morality pure. They're, they're, they're fighting to go on in God. They're fighting to get through some kind of depression. The, the, whatever it is you're experiencing, the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So we're to resist. Let's take that word. We're to resist the evil one. Not in our own strength, but by yielding to the indwelling Holy Spirit. And James expands even more on this. And I told you I was going to read it twice, so here we go again. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now notice, successful warfare doesn't begin with resisting. It begins with submitting. Successful warfare. So are you tired of the devil running roughshod over your home? your marriage, your mind, then the first thing you do is you submit yourself to God, and that means humble yourself before God. The the key to winning a battle is first to submit. The devil is not afraid of Christians, but he's terrified of the Holy Spirit and God's mighty word that resides in you. So as we submit to God, Satan finds himself up against the one who is in us, and that one is greater than he is, says 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And when you submit to God, you're essentially sending Jesus to the door when the devil knocks. When you submit to God. So it's like, devil, I don't answer the door when you knock. I submit to God and Jesus answers the door. I'm sending him to the door. The word resist is interesting. It means take a stand against. 
oppose. Hold your ground. Refuse to back down. The word resist means anything other than laying down and let the devil walk on you. This is somebody who said, devil, I've had enough. I've had enough of your temptations. I've had enough of your depression, your attacks. I've had enough of what you're doing to my home, to my kids. I've had enough. I've had enough. This is it. I'm putting my foot down and I resist you. I'm taking my stand on God's word. I oppose you. I disagree with you. I hold my ground against you. I refuse to back down against you. It's a picture of somebody just standing there refusing, refusing to lay down. Now, the Greek word we translate into resist, I'm just going to give you the word because you're going to recognize something from it. It's anthistemi. That's the Greek word, anthistemi. We get antihistamine from that word. Now, he says, I want you to resist the devil. Anthistemi, the devil. Now, let me tell you why it matters. If you take the anti part away from antihistamine, how many of you have already taken some this year? You're on antihistamines right now. That's why you're half asleep. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But how many of you, antihistamines help you? All right? Now, all right, here's the deal. If you take the anti away from antihistamine, you have histamine. Histamine is a substance in our bodies that plays a major role in allergic reactions. It's what causes the runny nose, the sneezing, the coughing. It's the histamine. The histamine is reacting to some things that are getting into the body, pollen, things like that. Hence, an antihistamine is a drug that resists and inhibits the effects of histamine so that you can breathe, you can stop coughing, stop sneezing, and feel better. Okay? So science borrowed from this Greek word to describe the effect of sending something into our bodies to resist an enemy, in this case, allergies. So here you've got histamine rising up in your body. It, it is fighting back this pollen and stuff and, and the, the, the reactions your body is having. And so your nose is running, you're, you're sneezing, you, you're coughing, you feel bad. So you take the antihistamine and it goes into your bloodstream and stands against histamine and says, back off. So here's the picture. When we resist the devil in the name of Jesus, it's like a spiritual antihistamine that blocks the devil's progress and sends him running spiritually when we stand on the name of Jesus and the word of God and the blood of Jesus. We are, we are essentially putting into play a spiritual antihistamine. And it pushes back against the devil and says, you can't take another step. Back off. Amen. I love words. I love words. According to James, when we're under spiritual attack, the first thing to check out is, am I submitted to God? Is my life in line with the Bible? Do I have any unconfessed sin? And once we know that we're submitted to the Lordship of Jesus and we're steadfast in the faith, we're ready to resist antihistamine, anthistamine. We're ready to resist, push back against, rebuke the devil, and refuse to yield ground to him. Now remember, the Christians to whom Peter was writing were staring Satan in the face in the person of the wicked emperor Nero. 
So Peter tells the Christians to refuse to allow his attacks to destroy the church by means of terror. Resist. The promise is, I love this, he'll flee from you. That word flee is so strong. It literally means he'll flee to escape from you. Can you imagine the devil fleeing to escape from you? This is what it tells us. Everybody raise your hand. I heard that, Jeff. Did you hear that? He's telling us literally, if we submit to God, and then we say in the name of Jesus and covered in the blood of the Lamb and filled with the Holy Ghost, I resist you. When the devil runs up against that, instead of him harassing you, you are harassing him. He literally will flee to get away from you as if you are something to be abhorred. Now, I I don't want to be abhorred by people, but to me, if you tell me that that I am abhorrent to the devil, you have just given me the greatest compliment in all the world. Amen? Amen? Remember in the book of Acts when those seven sons of Sceva tried casting out devils in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches? They said, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. And they said, Jesus we know. And Paul we know. But who are you? So now... Don't take this wrong. Please don't. But here's what that says. It it gives us a question. Who in hell are you? Does hell know who you are? Does hell say you better approach that one real close? Because last time I got close to them, they submitted to God and resisted the devil, and I had to run. Well, that one's going to get feedback on the radio. Amen? Come on, everybody. (laughs) Go out and tell them, that pastor said, who in hell are you? But it's a question because hell knew Paul. Hell feared Paul. Hell knew Jesus. We know who you are, they said to Jesus. You're the son of the most high God. Please don't send us into the abyss before our time. They knew who Jesus was. I want to have a church that hell knows all about and has some fear of. Amen? Amen. Here's another pastor over here. He's thinking, boy, I'll tell you, I'm glad I came tonight. (laughs) Right, Mark? Have you ever thought about that? Amen. Amen. Now, Peter next draws our attention to three important things. These are really rich. First, verse 10, chapter 5, verse 10, first part of the verse. But the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, he's drawing our attention to the grace of God in the midst of suffering. His first point of focus is God's grace. I love what he calls God. He's called the God of all grace. Our God is a God of amazing, undeserved on our part, and endless grace. This, says Peter, is what carries us through anything Satan can throw at us or a godless world can hurl at us. The amazing grace of God. Now, I, I thought of some things. Let me just give them to you. God's grace is sufficient for us in the face of all afflictions, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. 
God's grace has a limitless supply. It is enough for living and it's enough for dying. It's enough to deal with the penalty of sin and it's enough to overcome the power of sin. It's enough to carry us through persecution and it's enough to empower us to forgive the persecutor. It's enough to see us through and it's enough to see us home. The amazing grace of God. The Bible says by grace you were saved. And then the Bible says by grace you are kept. And then the Bible says it is grace that is going to take us across the finish line. So let the lion roar, says Peter. God's grace is greater than him and all his vile attacks combined. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for his grace? Amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Well, I should, I should have preached this on Sunday. This is why Paul could write, this is some of my favorite passages here, Romans 8, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Glory to God. So first, he deals with God's grace in our suffering. And then Peter's second point of focus is God's goal in our suffering. The second half of verse 10. After. Everybody say after. See, we're always focused on the now, but God is so often focused on our after. We're focused on what we're in. He he is focused on where we're going to be when we're through. After you have suffered for how long? A while. He will perfect. Establish, strengthen, and settle you. That's God's goal in your suffering. Now, I told you we're going to do a word study. Let me deal with those words. They all are power-packed. Peter's point here is that God sometimes allows suffering in order to develop and discipline us. Now, I know what you're thinking to yourself, some of you. Well, that's mean, Jeff. That's not loving. But before you think that about God, stop and consider that this is what a good coach does. See those football players out on the hot field prior to football season? They sweat, they groan, they suffer under the demands of the man hired to make them as good as they can be. He knows this will never happen apart from grueling workouts and tough discipline. Can I say that again? He knows this will never happen. They will never be all that they can be apart from grueling workouts and tough discipline. And God knows the same thing about you and me. God is not into flabby Christians. Nope. Not spiritually speaking. He's not. God is into battle-hardened, trial-tested, been through the fire and made it to the other side Christians who know the promises of God, can stand on the promises of God, and can bring down a Goliath because somewhere back there they brought down a lion and they brought down a bear. My favorite coach of all time, Tom Landry, once said, my job is to get the players to do what they don't want to do so that they can be what they really want to be. 
So God will allow you to go through some tough times. He will. Because what are you going to learn in the tough times? You're going to sit down and cry, curl up in a fetal position and give up. Or you're going to say, bless God. I better find out what the word says. I better learn how to pray. I better learn how to press in. And I better learn how to, how to really grab hold of God in the middle of a trial. And, and when you do that and he carries you through to the other side, that's what he was after. Because you're going to be stronger. You're going to be better. You're going to be wiser. You're going to be keener. You're going to be more discerning. You name it. It's going to work for your good. Phone home. Now, Peter says that there is a process with God. I want you to notice the two words, after and a while. After you have suffered a while, but let's just say after a while. After a while. Now, that means that God has his hand on the timer of your trial. After a while. While he sometimes allows suffering, he puts limits on it. He's got his hand on the thermostat. He's only going to let it get so hot before he stops it. He's got his hand on the dial. He said, after a while, that means there's an end. That means this is limited. Weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. While he allows suffering, he puts limits on it. We see this all through the Bible. God drew lines in the sand where Job's suffering was concerned. And at the end of his suffering, we see a stronger, better Job than the one we find at the beginning. But let's look at what the after suffering produces. He said after. Let's look at after. After a while. What are you going to find after the trial? First, God intends to make us perfect. Now, don't freak out. Because that word doesn't mean or didn't mean back then what it means now in English. It comes from a Greek word meaning to arrange, to set in order, or to adjust. It is the same Greek word used to describe John mending his net. So after a while, are you ready? He'll mend you. After a while, he'll mend you. And how is it that he uses suffering sometimes to do that? Now here's the truth. By God's grace, we're saved 100%. The moment we believe on Jesus, we are saved fully, 100%. Thank God. But there's much mending still needed to be done in our torn and tattered lives. Now, I love the way commentator John Phillips, one of my favorite commentators, put it. He said, quote, As a tailor uses a needle to make way for the thread, so God uses suffering in our lives to make way for the perfecting, the mending of our soul. Selah. Think about that one. That's so good, i got to read it again. Because here's how God uses suffering. As a tailor threads a needle and then uses that needle to make way for the thread to go through the fabric. So God uses suffering in our lives to make way for the perfecting, the mending of our soul. He uses He uses. The needle of suffering. So are you suffering tonight? Almost everybody in this room, in some way or another, somewhere in your life, you're suffering. Just think. There's an after. After a while, 
after a while, first thing he's going to do, he's going to, he's going to mend you. And now Peter says God also uses suffering to establish us. That's the second goal for suffering in God's eyes. This comes from the Greek word sterizo, and it means to make something firmly secure, to buttress or to support. Uh, it's the idea of driving a stake into the ground to hold a tent up. So it, it, is, it is something that, that props you up and, and, and establishes you where you are firm and grounded. He's going to establish you. I happen to think of Psalms 40 here, one of my favorite Psalms. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined unto me and heard my cry. Clearly he was suffering. And he brought me up out of a horrible pit. That's suffering. And out of the miry clay. And look what he did. Once he brings you out, he sets you on. And he set me on a rock. And then here comes the next word. And established my goings. That means he stabilized my life. I'm no longer unstable going here and there and everywhere and not knowing which way is up or down. Now I'm stable, steady Eddie, step by step, day by day. I'm on the rock. I'm rock-like. I'm walking with God. I, I am, I'm looking more and more like Jesus all the time. So everybody say, stay Rizzo. Stability is nothing more than the ability to stay. A lot of people can't do that. So he makes us unmovable in our faith. That's the second goal of God. Now here's the third one. So suffering plays a part in mending our souls and establishing us in our walk. And next Peter says that suffering serves to strengthen us. After you have suffered a while, he will mend you, he will establish you, he will strengthen you. This word means that we are strengthened to be able to achieve something in the most effective way. He strengthens you so that you can do whatever you're doing, you do it the best you ever could have. Amen. Amen. I know that's right. I had no high school, folks. Just be transparent with you for a minute. I had no high school. No 9th, 10th, 11th, or 12th. I was kicked out in the ninth grade and never made it back. I had this huge hole in my education. But you know what? God came into my life. I could say, but God. Then there was God. And, and he picked me, he brought me out of my horrible pit. He brought me out of my miry clay. He set my feet on the rock who is Jesus. And then he stabilized my life. And then he put a new song in my mouth, even praise to our God. Now, here's the deal. Then he strengthened me to go into school and do it the best I ever could have. And I, 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 the, in junior college, I was able to get B's because I was playing catch-up, no high school. But in my four-year, in my master's and my doctorate, I got A's. Now, I'm, I'm bragging on Jesus here. He strengthened me, just what this says. He strengthened me to make way for me to do it the best that I ever could have. So everybody say, he mends me, he establishes me, he strengthens me. And finally, and this is one of my favorites, suffering will settle you. This word means to ground us or to settle us on a firm foundation. It, it may be that Peter had in mind the parable that we've been talking so much about here on Sundays, the two builders that built their houses, one on sand, the other on rock. 
Nothing like suffering drives us into the word of God to lay hold of the promises or the prayer closet to cast our cares upon him. Much of the Bible that I have learned in my life, I learned because of suffering. I got into the word to survive. Most of the Bible verses I've memorized. I memorized them because I was suffering and I needed God to deliver me. David himself said, before I suffered, I did many wrong things. But now I carefully obey everything you say. Amen? So we have God's grace in our suffering, God's goal in our suffering. And now Peter comes to the third and final point, God's glory in our suffering. He says in verse 11, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen? Now, bottom line, out of the crucible of pain and persecution... Out of heartache, grief, and woes comes a doxology. A doxology is a short hymn of praise to God. As John Phillips, again, so beautifully puts it, I love this. I wish I'd thought of this, but I'm quoting Mr. Phillips. Suffering is the storm cloud that provides the canvas on which God paints the rainbow. Wow. That's so good, I'm going to read him again. Everybody say with me, suffering is the storm. I'm sorry, let's start over. Suffering is the storm cloud that provides the canvas on which God paints the rainbow. Now, in closing, Peter lets us know that he sends his letter by a trusted colleague. We're coming to the close now. He says in verse 12, By Silvanus, our faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Now, this verse suggests that Peter dictated this letter to Silvanus, who served as his transcriber, and then the one who carried it to Peter's target audience. Because they didn't have email. Amen? He had to walk it. In the next verse, Peter tells us which church he writes from. Verse 13, the church that is in Babylon. Now, many commentators believe that Peter was literally birthing a church in Babylon, and that's why he was there. He was preaching uh, to the folks there in Babylon, putting together a local church, and he had at least gotten it together somewhat because he says, hey, this church, this new church in Babylon, the elect together with you greets you. And so does Mark, my son. Now, there's little doubt that the Mark he mentions as his son in the faith is John Mark, who also wrote the book of Mark, one of the four Gospels. Isn't it neat how all these people that we know so well from what they wrote were all hanging together back then like this? And he considered little John Mark his son. He closes his first letter with an encouragement to walk in love, and in peace. So let's stand together and we're going to read this out loud together. And then, since we may have just a couple of minutes, I may take two questions. Are you ready, Aaron? Is Aaron in here? There you are. I may have time to take two questions, maybe two or three, and then we'll let it go, but I, I do have a little time. So let's, let's read this together and be thinking of a question. Nothing about, well, just make it scriptural. Make it about, nothing about me. Make it scriptural. Like, what do you eat? I live on cereal. I'm a single guy. The only way, the only way that I have had real food is 
Some of the women in our church have had mercy and sent me some real food from time to time. So now I've told you about me. Let's read together. Ready? Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. He ends with love and he ends with peace. Next time we're going to start 2 Peter and it is prophetic and it is fiery. And I'm going to go from 2 Peter to Jude. And so we're going to have some rich time in the word here, folks. Amen. All right. All right. Turn to your neighbor and tell him that was good and be seated again one more time. Now, do you have a question? Let me, let me answer any questions you might have. I'll try. I'll do my best. This takes guts to do. But if you have a question, raise your hand. All right. Right over there. Right, yeah, there we go. This is a humbling question, but a lot of times I'm 55 years old and I spend a lot of time drinking and I'm, uh, I've, I've been sober for three years. I pray a lot. I read the word a lot. Yeah. A lot of times I'll get restless thoughts that I want to go out because I'm missing something. I'm getting older. Yeah. But the more it seems like I just close my mind to that and start reading the word, that kind of goes away. And yeah. I'm wondering, is that what I'm, God wants me, when I get those thoughts, those that warring going on, because in other words... Right. Restlessness is fleshly. Uh, it says he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. So I'm going to feel... Grab that. Yeah. Need to, but yes, I, I would just say when you're feeling restless that way, then, then I would say when you turn... It says, it says to have your mind on the flesh is death, Romans 8. But if you keep your mind on the things of the Spirit, it is life and peace. Amen? And he's a God of peace. All right, any other questions? And I rejoice over your victory over alcohol. That's great. Amen. You hold it. Aaron, can you get in there and just kind of hold it? So that, there we go. Run around. There we go. There. You just said that uh, you gave a verse where as long as you believe in the Lord and have faith that you're saved. So what about the verse that says you have to have faith and good works? Because sometimes it's like, okay, I can live in sin as long as I believe in God. How do you explain? Because it sounds kind of contradicting. How can you explain that you can't just believe in God and sin to someone who isn't a believer? Are you asking me about a verse that says you are to have faith and good works to be saved? Is that pretty much the gist of the question? Okay, you, you're probably talking about James, that, where James says, you say if you, you have faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. Um, here's the difference. Works don't save us, but they do testify that we have been saved. That is, when you're truly born again, God changes your nature. And it is the will of God. According to Ephesians, Paul wrote that God prepared good works for us before time began. So the good works are anything you do in the name of Jesus, for the cause of Jesus, in the will of Jesus for you. That's a good work. And so I'm doing a good work teaching tonight, but it doesn't save me. The blood saves me, and only the blood saves me. Okay? So I'm saved by faith in him, but my good works attest to the fact that I have been saved. 
Because if you say you're saved but you're living in sin, John would tell us in 1 John, you're not saved, you're a liar. I'm just quoting John. He's tough. He, he, he uh, what's that? Flew like a butterfly, but stung like a bee. And, and um, that's John. Because he would say, if you say you know him, but you live in sin, you're a liar. Now, not, he's not saying if you ever sin, you're not saved, because we all sin. The, the, the operative word is if you practice a sinful lifestyle without conviction of sin then no doubt you don't know him. Because if you know him, you're going to be miserable in sin. Right? Does that help? Okay. Anyone else? Huh? Backsliding. Yes, backsliding, you get into the flesh, you get into some addiction, something pulls on you, you fall into what you know is sin, and, yeah, you're, you're backslidden. You're, you're, you're giving into your flesh. You're not obeying God. You're in a season of rebellion in your life. And when that happens, Hebrews tells us, God knows your address. He's going to get you, and he's going to chasten you. And that word chasten is so strong. It means, let me see if I can, he's going to whoop you behind the woodshed (laughs) in a way you never forget it. And it says, because he chastens you, you come back to him and you are a partaker of his holiness. So he'll whoop you. But he does not disown you. He chastens you. Okay? All right? Anyone else? Yes, ma'am? Oh, wait, wait, wait. We got to get, they all got to hear you. There we go. Um, Are we supposed to be listening to resurrected people? Because it, um, that is... I mean, that does exist because I've been hearing my resurrected family. Um, Wait, tell me what you mean by resurrected. Tell me what you mean by resurrected. You mean... Okay, who I know who have died, they have had funerals, and I've heard them, you know, and... You've heard their voices talking to you? Yes. Okay. Not only that, I've heard people in the earth talking... Um, it's not like daydreaming anymore where you can review a whole situation in your mind, you know, just sitting on the couch, just reviewing. It's not like that. Well, it's kind of like that. Um, but I thought that I was in the spirit, and it's been going on two years now. Since this has been happening? Uh-huh. Okay. So, so you, people who have passed away, who you knew, who were Christian? Some of them and some of them not. Okay, you believe they're talking to you. They are. Okay, now here's where I got to go to the scriptures, okay? Because that's my authority. Uh, And the scriptures would suggest there's nothing in scripture that speaks to that. Now, I'm not saying you're not hearing something. What I am saying is scripture does not ever say that somebody who has died has the ability to talk to people on earth. What that is, is that's ghosts kind of thing. And um, the scriptures don't teach ghosts. Here's what the scriptures say. When somebody dies, if they're lost, they go down. They They go to Sheol, or not Sheol, Hades. Sheol in the Hebrew, but Hades. 
they go down. If they're saved, they go up. But they never stick around. They either go down or they go up. They don't stick around. The wall of partition has to do with the Jews and Gentiles. And what if you if you read it in the context, when, when Paul says the middle wall of partition has been torn down, he has been talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. And they were at odds with each other. Jews didn't talk to Gentiles. Gentiles didn't talk to Jews. But in Jesus, we all became one. So there's not male or female, Jew nor Greek. But we're all one in Christ. So that's the middle wall of partition he's talking about in that verse. He's not talking about the wall between the spirit world and us. He's talking about the Jew and the Gentile. I mean, that's just in context. So I'm not saying you don't hear something. I would really encourage you to pray about the source. Because nowhere does scripture say that. I, I, let me tell you something. I have so wished at times I could talk to Kathy because I lost her over two years ago. And there are times when I'm dealing with something, I can imagine what I know she would have said to me because uh, she counseled me all the time. So, like, I'll be in a situation that's a church situation, and I can almost hear her saying, Jack, this is what you need to do. <laughs> I can almost hear it. Now, in my mind's eye, I, I can hear it, but it's not her. I just know what she would say. Um, but I can't talk to her. There's a great chasm between me and her. And I'll see her when I go to heaven. But, and I'll see you know, many people. But Scripture does not say they are allowed to talk to us because that is moving into the realm of witchcraft, and you have to be careful there. Now, I'm not saying that's what you're doing at all. You look like a good woman to me. I know you love Jesus. I'm not saying that. But you have to be careful. Okay? Um, so pray about that. And, and look in the scriptures about that. And I can talk to you more about this. Uh, okay? All right? One more. Any, all right? Right up, way over here. We're going to make you run, Aaron. One more. No, no, give me the mic. You hold it. Yeah. <laughs> We're pressed for time. I guess Um so my main question that I have right now is because there's so much historical revisionism going on, especially regarding the nation of Israel. Um, I didn't know if there's any particular book or thing that you could, or resource you could be able to help us to be able to show as far as for what happened in the true history, because so much of it is just kind of like falling by the wayside, or they're trying to cover, people are trying to cover it up. The truth of the origins of Israel. Yes, sir. And and the land and all of that. Yes, sir. Okay, the best place that you can go is is something. Uh, encyclopedic, secular. Like the other day I was reading something about Israel and Palestine and the Palestinian conflict and, and all of that. And I, I simply, now I don't Google anything. I bing. I'm just telling you. Because Google has lost me. They're so ultra leftist, liberal. I believe they're blocking conservative thought. So, and I'm sure Bing probably does too, but I think Bing is the lesser of two evils. Bing, Israel's origins. And go back and just read the political history, and it'll tell you. You'll be able to dig it up because it is important to know that. 
It really is, and it's a great topic. I should do a series on it sometime. All right, let's stand up, everybody. Isn't that good? Amen. Amen. Yeah. Maybe I'll do next week a question and answer before we dig into Second Peter. Would you all want a second uh, question and answer? Would you give me good questions? I know you will. How many want a question and answer before we do Second Peter? How many want Second Peter first? Well, of course, it's a divided church. I'll ask Jesus. He'll tell me what to do. All right. Let's thank the Lord. Lord, we just thank you and praise you and bless you. We thank you that you're the living God, that you gave us that wonderful letter. Thank you that you take suffering and you work it for the good. Thank you that it becomes a tool in your hands. Now, Lord, we give our suffering to you, both mental, spiritual, physical, relational. We give it to you. Help us, Lord, in our suffering, Lord. And help us to come out on the other side purified like gold in Jesus name amen you're dismissed God bless you we'll see you Sunday